Do you find yourself saying you're too busy for Bible study? No more excuses. Now there's a way for you to participate in a 30-minute study from your phone, tablet, or computer from anywhere around the world. Aaron Olson of Sandalfeet Ministries teaches lunchtime lessons via Facebook Live every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time at facebook.com slash sandalfeet. This podcast is recorded during the Facebook Live event for those who'd like to listen to the teaching again or help out in case you miss a week. So grab your lunch, your Bible, and a notepad before we begin. If you'd like to get Aaron's teaching notes, you can visit sandalfeet.org and click on Books and Bible Studies to see all the available free Bible study material. Hey, thanks for listening today, and we hope you tune in each week for Lunchtime Lessons. Hi, everyone. We're so happy that you're here for the second week of lunchtime lessons. If you're joining us today, just uh, let us know that you're here by either liking the post or letting us know um, in the comment section that you're joining us. I hope you had the opportunity last week to listen to the first lunchtime lesson where we covered 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now in that chapter, we talked briefly um, about the background of Ephesus, kind of what the city was like, who the people were, um, what kind of people was Paul talking to? What, what were the overall issues that Paul was addressing in the letter of 1 Timothy? And if you're interested in that, you can go back and watch that Facebook Live. You can listen to my podcast on Sandalfeet Ministries, wherever podcasts are available. Or you can also go to sandalfeet.org and click on Books and Bible Studies. And in there, under 1 Timothy, you can find all of my teaching notes from last week and Probably later today or sometime tomorrow, you'll be able to find them um, for today's chapter as well. So today we're going to dig into 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now I'm super grateful that a majority of 1 Timothy chapter 2 deals with an issue, um, addressing an issue that I love to talk about. The second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, not so much. Um, so I'm going to focus a lot of my time on the first half of 1 Timothy chapter 2 because I think there's inherent value in what Paul is urging the people to do. Um, and I think that needs to be our starting point and that's exactly what Paul says as well. So real quickly, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul discusses public worship. We had mentioned before that each chapter in this letter talks about something specific. Chapter 1 talked about false doctrine, the false teachers, and this chapter talks about public worship. Now, sometimes in our mind, we're thinking of public worship in the act that we do every Sunday for an hour. Um, but really, public worship is, is how we carry ourselves as Christians every day of our lives. Now, remember, the church in Ephesus, they had a gathering place, but oftentimes they met in homes throughout the week. And so that was their act of public worship. And so we're reminded what to do as Christians today in the year 2018. Um, in our areas of public worship, whether that be in our home as we lead our families and guide our children, whether that be in our workplace, what does that look like? Our worship of God, the Almighty, in our workplace. Um, and certainly in our churches, what does it look like? Are we actively engaging in worship when we come together as a corporate body, as a body of Christ, and lift up our prayers and, and songs of praise to God um, during our worship services? So it's important. Um, he talks about his two biggest points in this chapter are global prayer for the local church. What does that look like? What does it mean? And men and women and their behavior within God's household. Um, so remember, Paul told 
Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to take control of these false teachers. They were teaching false doctrine. He needed to stop that. So Paul had given the information, the instruction verbally before, but in this letter, he was writing it again to Timothy because it was so urgent. It was so pressing and, and he wasn't able to be there. He was most likely going to be held up. And so he wanted to make sure that this information, that he heard what was going on in Ephesus um, that had come to pass that they had already talked about years earlier happening was happening. And he wanted Timothy to be um, equipped and given permission to and addressed and say, you need to deal with these issues. And so he was dealing with that. And so um, we talked last week a lot about how the word of God is an errant and it's God breathed. And so we have to look at that in this context this is we're going to look at it historically like just as we did last week what was the historical context of this letter what was going on what was taking place but we also need to talk about you know revelation what does it mean for us why would god decide to include this very important oftentimes divisive information within the word of god so we need to look at it through that lens as well um and so the bible in its totality is a love letter we celebrated valentine's day yesterday the day of love well God loves us every day of the week. And so the Bible is his love letter to us, telling us and the world how much he loves his people and how much he loves creation, despite what we've done and what people have done throughout history. He loves us and gives us an opportunity um, to partake in his plan of redemption. And it also is an instruction manual, if you will. You know, a lot of people say, I don't, I don't know how to do life. Well, pick up your Bible and you'll know how to do life. You'll know how you learn how to be a better parent, a better husband, a better wife a better student, a better child, an, an obedient worker. Um, you'll learn how to act within the church body. You'll learn what a dysfunctional church looks like as opposed to what a healthy church should look like. So make no mistake, the Bible is an instruction manual for good godly living. And if you have any question about that, that's where you need to go. And so let's start. I'm going to read like I did last week. I'm going to read the entire chapter of chapter two first, and then we'll dig into some of the verses. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us um, just ways to live and be. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit be ever-present today 
and help us understand what your word says. Lord, give us understanding. And Lord, I pray as that I speak, Lord, that you would soften hearts to be receptive to what your word has to say. Lord, I pray that all that we say today is honoring to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul uses the word first of all. He does this because it's important and it's an urgency. He's urging him, listen, this is it. I'm telling you, I urge you, first of all, to pray. This is a significant demand and command by Paul. That's where we need to start. The false teachers, remember, were changing the doctrine, which Paul believed was compromising the gospel. They were trying to add things to the gospel, take things away from the gospel. They were trying to change the gospel. Um, make, you know, they were using their mystifying stories and adding things to it. And so Paul told um, Timothy to stop it. And, and how do we start by, remember he told Timothy, he wanted him to guard the gospel, celebrate the gospel, and fight for the gospel. And now that, those were practical things. And now he's saying, this is how you do it. The tool in which you guard the gospel, celebrate the gospel, and you fight for the gospel is through prayer. So I urge you to pray first. The church's prayers, our prayers, the big C church's prayers should not be limited in their scope. Believers are to pray for all people. Um, the church, remember, we're on a life-saving mission. The people of God, we're on a life-saving mission. We are to go out and share the good news of the gospel, which is the saving grace of God. And so we need to we need to remember that, right? We're not just out doing life or doing church. We're out on a mission to save lives from eternal damnation. Um, we're not a country club. We're not on permanent vacation until Jesus returns. We can't just sit back idly and just watch the sunsets and the sunrises as we give praise to God and keep the gospel to ourselves. We are to go out and share the gospel. We have a commission, men and women. It's not exclusive. Um, Men and women have a commission by God to reach the lost with the gospel. He commanded us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, preaching and baptizing in my name. Um, the gospel is not ours to limit. It's not ours to decide who gets the gift. It is our job only to share the gift of God with people. That's what we're to do. And prayer, what is prayer? Prayer equals influence. You say, how does that happen? Like, what is, what is that? How is prayer influencing? Well, our prayers and our lack of prayer, remember, it's not just the prayers that we pray, but it's also the pray, prayers that we never pray. They have significance and influence. Have you ever witnessed answered prayer ever in your lifetime? Have you ever seen a prayer that you prayed or, or maybe you were praying in a group and you witnessed answered prayer in a way that you never thought was possible? And do you think the answer was by chance? Paul uses four different words in verse one dealing with prayer. He says, pray. He uses the word petitions. He uses the word prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Um, petition basically is just making a meek and humble ask to God to do something impossible that only through God can be done. Uh, intercessions, they're prayers for others. Jesus is the great intercessor. He prays for all of us, the Bible says. But we can intercede. When we're intercessors, we're praying for others. Um, lots of people are called to be intercessory prayer warriors, and they're praying for specific groups of people or specific topics or, or things that need to be done, and they're intercessors, praying for others. 
thanksgiving. It's the act of giving thanks, right? Grateful to God for the benefits and the favor that he displays and offers. And they're thanksgivings to God. So he's saying, pray, intercede, petition, ask for the impossible, but to do this for all people. So who are we to pray for then? Everyone. And the word all means everyone. It means for every kind of person, um, not just the people who are like you. Remember, Paul was addressing the church at Ephesus here, and there were Jews and Gentiles who are now one in Christ in that congregation. And so remember, Jews didn't like Gentiles. And so he was saying, come together, pray for everybody, pray for everybody in this city, those who are in the church, who are saved believers, but also pray for those who are still outside the walls of this church. Pray for them, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So Paul told that to the church in Corinth, but it applies here in Ephesus. It applies to our church today. Regardless of who they were before Christ, we're all one in Christ. So pray for one another. Sitting in that congregation, pray for each other. Don't hold back your prayers for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even those who might not be making good choices, pray for them. Um, remember, the false teachers, as I talked about before, they were limiting salvation to the religious elite. Uh, you think about Apollos. Uh, Apollos, people, he was a teacher in the church. He was a pastor. And actually, there, remember, there was some contention where people actually liked to hear Apollos preach more than Paul because Apollos was a more gifted speaker. But there was a season when he was preaching and he wasn't preaching the full gospel. He wasn't sharing. He knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. And, and he was limiting himself and limiting others to certain knowledge. And Priscilla and Aquila, they pulled him aside and they both taught him um, how to do things right. So um, remember, there were people that were in the church that were teaching doctrine, that were leading people who didn't have the full story. And so they might have been limiting the potential of the Christian, whether that's the potential to, hey, let's pray for others, or hey, salvation's available to all. Paul was like, no, listen, this is this is the story. Salvation's available to all, that's the gospel, and prayer needs to be made for all. That's what Jesus asks us to do. And so Paul says there is absolutely no category of person that we should pray for. He says, we need to pray for all. And then he goes on, who do we pray for? And he specifically calls out leaders in high positions here, right? Even if you don't like the leaders, pray for them anyway. Um, whether we like it or not, the leaders that are over us, they can change the quality of our life. And Paul says to pray for your leaders. If you want peace and quiet, pray for the rulers above you. Why? Because if your leader, for instance, is not somebody who is a believer in Christ, every single decision they make, every rule, every everything they do is ruled by the world and not by the grace of God. And so if they are put in that position, the Bible is clear that God puts rulers and kings in positions, whether they're saved or not saved, he puts them in those positions. And if they are not saved, they are not going to God for wisdom. And they are making choices that affect the culture that are not lined up with God's will. And we see this in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a city that was ruled by non-Christians, okay? At the time that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, it was under the Emperor Nero. 
and Nero was notorious for persecuting Christians. Um, he was horrible. So Paul's basically saying, pray for Nero, pray for that guy. I know he's killing Christians. I know he's not a nice guy. He is not a godly guy, but you need to pray for him. Pray for his salvation. Only God can change a man's heart. So pray for him. Um, so the practical application for us today, what does this mean, right? Instead of getting angry or frustrated at the news, get on your knees and pray. Um, here in the United States, we had a horrible thing that happened yesterday where a young man, 19-year-old, went into a school that he had attended and killed innocent children and teachers. Horrible act of violence on a day that was supposed to be filled with love. Horrible. Now, some people are going to see that and they're going to get angry and they're going to get frustrated. And they're going to get angry at policymakers and they're going to get angry at that boy who is still alive, who had a horrible past and just tragedy in his own life. But they're going to get angry and they're going to get frustrated. And instead of dropping to their knees in prayer, they're going to get mad. And they're going to say ugly, hurtful things about people. And what Paul is encouraging the church here and what Jesus has asked us to do as well is to pray for all of those people. Pray that their actions would be lined up with the will of God. And that's what you and I need to do. We can get angry, we can get mad, we can gossip, we can talk to our friends all we want about what happened yesterday, what will happen today, what's going on somewhere else in the world today. But unless we're committed to dropping our, to our knees and praying and petitioning God for the impossible and interceding for the salvation of others, we are no better than those people who are walking outside of God's will. And we can't be that church. We need to be the church that prays for people, that brings um, the saving grace of the gospel to them. And so Paul was urging the church at Ephesus to pray a Matthew 5 prayer, not a Psalm 5 prayer. David used to talk a lot about, um, God, just kill my enemies, take them out. And, and Paul's here saying, no, 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 we're now under the umbrella of grace. And Jesus would never pray that prayer. Jesus said to pray for your enemies, forgive your enemies. Um, and so Paul's saying, listen, this is what we need to do. Nero, in this setting, he's an enemy because he's persecuting our brothers and sisters. But we need to pray for him. We need to be like Jesus and pray for those who persecute us because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You can pull that up on your own. It's a lengthy um verse in Psalm 5 and, and read those two. I'd encourage you to read those two side by side and compare the difference of what it was to live under the law during David's time and what it is to live under grace. They're two totally different approaches to how we view others in the kingdom. Um, and I think it'll be eye-opening for you. So, and what do we pray for? We need to pray for peace amid persecution so the church may flourish. Right? We know that churches can flourish under persecution, and oftentimes the biggest growth sometimes kind of comes under persecution because those people are really praying and really trusting and really leaning in and petitioning and asking for the impossible and relying heavily on the grace and favor of God to make it through the day and to survive. And so, um, but during this time period that Paul was writing this letter to, to Timothy, it was known as a period of Pax Roma, Romana or Roman peace. And there was literally a road that was being paved so that the gospel could be taken out to all. They were making roads and these roads were making it accessible for people like Paul and Timothy and Apollos to travel to share the good news. So we need to pray for opportunities for peace just like this. We need to pray in our cities, in our country, in our schools, um, wherever we are, that we usher in peace and opportunities where we have 
people of peace. Jesus always said to go to those homes and find those people of peace, those who were already softened to hear the gospel. We need to go find school principals. We need to go find employers. We need to find whomever that might be that might have the ability to give, that has opened the door to peace so that we can share the good news of the gospel to those we're around. Um, when we're in countries that are at peace, we have the ability to share the gospel in a different way where there are locked countries, countries who are persecuting Christians, but we need to pray for opportunities for peaceful things so that the gospel can go forth. That needs to be important for us. Um, and we also need to pray for the salvation of those persecutors. There's a an early church father, John Chrysostom, who said, it is much more difficult to hate someone when you are praying for them. And I tell you something, prayer changes your heart because prayer aligns your heart with the will of God. It's really hard to spew hateful, ugly things about a person when you're talking to the person who created them. So I would challenge you, if there's something that's really bothering you, um, that's going on, pray, pray for them. Paul is saying, listen, this is what the church needs to be known for. We need to be people who live quiet lives. We need to live peacefully, marked by godliness and dignity. This is what we need to do. This is how we need to be known by our fruit. And prayer accomplishes that because prayer changes our heart. Prayer changes um, our sinful nature into the nature of God because we become aligned with his will. We spend time with Jesus and we understand his word and um, we understand his love for the world so much better. The progress of the gospels in the world is dependent upon the prayer of God's people in the church. You won't spread the gospel to all people if you don't love all people. You'll hold some of it back, and that's not what God wants us to do. So let's get into 1 Timothy 3, 2, 3 to 6 real quick, right? So we talked a little bit about this. God loves people. Um, the motivation behind our praying for all is God's motivation and passion for all. God desires the salvation of all people. We've already discussed that, right? But we also need to know, don't be discouraged. Not all people will be saved. So even though his will is that all be saved, not all will be saved. Because Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says it's, it, grace is a gift, but it's accepted through faith. And not all people are going to accept through faith. They're not going to accept the gift. So we need to not get discouraged by that. Not all will be saved. Not because God doesn't want them saved, but because they make the choice not to be saved. Um, his will is never thwarted, though. He is always in control, regardless of whether or not a king and a ruler ever accept salvation. God is good, and he can make all things good. And so his will is never thwarted. His plan always goes forward. And God deser deserves the honor of all people. Um, there's no other God but God. Yeah, it says that in Isaiah 45, 21 to 22, it says, For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God and there is no other. Right? God deserves the honor of all people. Plain and simple. Um, God's passion for all. He deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. And that's what it's about. That's what drives prayer. And we pray to God, Christ, Jesus Christ died for all people. He was our ransom. It says that in 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6, right? For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at the right time. Jesus was our ransom, our ransom. And this is why, um, this is why we share this. He died for all, not just for me, not just for you, but he died for all. 
So moving on to 1 Timothy 2, 7. Um, he, play, he prayed, uh, what, what, what do we do? It says, I've been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message. We've been appointed to teach this message. We need to share the good news as well. We herald, we announce the cross of Christ, and we teach the commands of Christ. And remember too, our prayers are a part of our teaching and reaching. Don't forget that. In Revelation 5, 8, it speaks of gold bowls filled with the prayers of God's people. What kind of prayers have you deposited into those bowls? What kind of people have you been praying for? What kind of prayers have there been for people that are deposited into those bowls? He next goes on to address uh, the divisive men in the church first. <laughs> he, um, thankfully, he does that. And um, he talks about in verse eight, he says, uh, and I want, um, I'm sorry, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. He's telling these men, listen, you can't come into the presence of an almighty holy God with dirty hands. And this was, you know, something that they would have understood because outside there, they would have had a wash basin basin where they would have washed their hands. And that, rep, that was symbolic of washing myself clean from sin so that I can come into the presence of God. And to lift them meant surrender. And so he was saying, listen, you need to symbolically represent that you're pure and that you need to be submissive to God um, under his authority. And so they needed to do that. And if they weren't doing that, then there was something wrong. Maybe their hearts weren't pure. Um, they were bowing their neck and they weren't willing to come under the submissiveness of God as the authority. And also too, he talks about free from anger and controversy. These guys were quarreling and they were fighting. And he said, listen, Jesus said, you know, if somebody, if somebody sins against you to forgive them. And these guys, they weren't. So they were expecting to come into the church in a time of worship without cleaning their hands, lifting their hands, without being pure in heart, and they were fighting with others. He's like, get it right. You know, Jesus, Matt, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 to 24, right? If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar and, and you remember that someone has something against you, put the offering down, go make things right with that person, and then come back. So Paul's saying, do you not remember what Jesus said? You can't have controversy with your brother in, in Christ, in the church, and expect the prayers to go up. So he's encouraging these men here to live well, to lead well, be an example. The, if you're the leader of the church, if you're the head of the family, if, if, if God has put you in authority over, over the woman in the household, um, which we're talking here, remember, about God's household, if the men, the man is the one in, in position of authority, if the man in, in the first place is not doing what he's supposed to be doing, everything else is messed up underneath it. It's true in a family, it's true in the body of Christ. If he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, it's all gonna trickle down and it's gonna be a mess. So men, he's saying, stop it, knock it off, get it right, get your hearts pure, clean up your life, make sure you're not holding a grudge, committing sin, that you have um, unconfessed sin before you come and, and worship in front of a holy God. And that, that's true for a Sunday, but that's true for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. When you get up in the morning, men and women, make, make, make sure you're right with God. Um, confess anything that comes to mind that the Holy Spirit convicts you of. You know, did you say an unkind word yesterday? Did you gossip? Did you, um, were you rude to somebody? Were you dishonoring to God? Did you use this name in vain? Any of those things and confess those things to God so that you can come in his presence and so he's ready to hear. Um, it's important for all of us, but he's reminding the men specifically in here, y'all need to be leading well, uh, doing things right. Um, you can't come in here and just do whatever you wanna do and expect everything else to run smoothly.
Now, well, quickly, I only have a few minutes, but we're going to get into the distracting women in the church. And this is probably takes a whole day, <laughs> a whole 30 minutes to talk about. Um, maybe I'll talk about it more in depth next week. I haven't decided, but basically I love what my husband has to say. He has to say this, and I respect what he says tremendously. So we talk about this a lot because um, he knows my passion for teaching and, um, and, and he also respects what I have to say. And so he says that, listen, I don't want to be the kind of man that holds any woman back that doesn't allow her to go forth and share the gospel because one day I'll have to stand in front of God. And what if he asks me, 50% of the body of Christ you precluded from being able to teach? 50% or maybe more. You know, there may be more saved women than there are saved men. I don't know the statistics, but, um, but you've basically cut them off from doing lots of things. Now, what if there's a man within an earshot of a woman who happens to be teaching? Does that, is that the woman's fault? Um, you know, Corey Ten Boom, who I respect so much, she was a Dutch, um, a Dutch woman growing up during the Nazi regime and, and her family harbored Jews. And after her, she was released from imprisonment, her whole family had died and she was released from imprisonment. And she went on to travel the world to share her testimony and, and to teach about forgiveness and grace. And she was, you know, she taught from huts in Africa to pulpits in big churches around the world. And to think that she would have been precluded because she was a woman to simply teach what Jesus said about forgiving your enemy. Because she was a woman, she couldn't teach men. I don't know. You know, there's something about that, that God can use us all if we're willing. The woman at the well, Thecla is her name. If she ran back after God exposed her sin and she realized that Jesus was the Messiah and she ran back to her village and it doesn't say that she ran back only to the women of the village she ran back proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah in that city and so we you know we need to be careful we have to look at the context of this and so many things but in in the context of Ephesus there was a, a goddess who reigned there basically. You know, the Romans are huge on the gods and the goddesses. So right there, that's a problem. They were sitting smack dab in the middle of an ungodly culture. And Diana, the goddess of Ephesus, was basically a hunter and a gatherer and she had dominion over nature. She made a vow never to marry. So if you think about a culture that is opposite of God's plan, this was it, right? He, she was um, never wanted to marry. God said, go forth and multiply. You know, he created women to bear children. He, um, she was basically in the position of Adam. She had dominion over animals. Well, God had given Adam dominion over these animals. And so um, they were following this pattern. And, and Paul, I think, was like, no, no, no. Okay, we've got we've to get this under the authority of God. We've got to get back to the order. And I think that's why, and, and commentators that I read also agreed that in these last verses in um, 12, no, 13 through 15, he goes back to Adam. Remember, there's Jews sitting in this congregation, so they know the book of Genesis. He reminds them all of what the order was, how... The order and the creation of God got all messed up in the first place. The serpent tricked Eve, who was a woman, who uh, was deceived. She took up the fruit. She gave it to her husband. She didn't ask him what his opinion was first. She took the fruit. She didn't say, hey, Adam, what do you think about this? Do you think I should eat the fruit? And then Adam had the right to say no or yes to his wife. And instead, she took the fruit without asking her husband. And then he um, ate it too. So God's whole order of man and woman, their complementary roles right there got messed up. 
And even in Genesis 3.16, he basically said that to the woman. He said, you know, you're going to have pain in childbirth and you're going to want to have dominion, control over your husband, but he's going to rule over you. You see, before the fall, it, it wasn't like that. It was a very complimentary role. But after the fall, it became, because of sin, it became out of order. And so Paul's basically telling these people, we need to get, we are the body of Christ, the temple of God, we the people, the church. We need to get back to the order of, of Genesis, of the before the fall. Um, you know, there's God and there's man and then there's woman. And, and so he's, you know, he uses this in Corinth. He uses the example of women submitting to men and their husbands. Um, he talks about it in Ephesians, a woman submitting to her husband. And so, um, and men submit to the authority of God and that we all submit to the authority of God. And so we've got to be careful in these contexts that he talks about clothing. Now, clothing has used throughout history to... Um, to kind of share what your social status is or kind of what kind of job you have. Remember here, they had temple prostitutes. And so temple prostitutes would wear specific clothing to attract customers, if you will. And so they would adorn themselves with jewelry and sometimes they would adorn themselves with really expensive jewelry to show they had wealth, whereas the people who didn't have wealth would not feel the same. So they weren't unified because if their one is flashy and showing off their wealth and one is poor, you know there's gonna be division, just inherently division. And he was saying, don't do it. We should all dress modestly. Women, cover yourselves. Um, don't draw attention to yourself, but instead by your works, what you do, that's what you should be known for. You shouldn't be known for the type of jewelry you wear, the designer clothes you wear, the handbags that you carry. You should be known solely by the fact that you are a Christ follower who does good things in Jesus' name. And that is what Paul is telling them, women, be modest don't look like the rest of the people out there because if you do you're confusing the message if you're wearing short shorts and low tops to church you look like the world and and that's going to throw people off it's going to confuse them and it's not a unifying message um and then we talk about later uh, we may have to get into this and i'll come back to this i think in chapter three it's probably a good place to end right here but he talks about i do not let women teach men or have authority over them and remember, um, elders were the only ones who had the authority to teach in the church. And I wish that chapter 3 had come before chapter 2 because Paul gives his definition of an elder. And I think that'll help us make sense in why he says, I don't allow women to teach men or, have, or teach or have authority over men. It's because only elders could teach and only elders could be men according to how Paul defines an elder. So... Like I said, I think this is a great place to end because I can get a little bit into more of the woman's role, um, what she's allowed to do, not to do, according to how Paul defines elders in chapter three. So we will dig into that next week. Um, so I hope that you will share this message, talk about this message, and I hope that you take to heart what Paul says in the first verse. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. You know, forget about Okay, let's, we can fight about what we're wearing. We can fight about, okay, should we wear designer clothes in church? Should we dress in normal clothes? Who are we honoring? Are we honoring God or ourselves? Are we trying to draw attention to ourselves? Who can teach? Who can't teach? But if we're not praying for people, it doesn't really matter. Um, our petitions, our intercession, all of our prayers, it matters to God. He hears our prayers and we need to be praying for all people. And I think that should be our unifying thing, especially today, today's world. If you spend the next seven days before we meet again next week praying for people, all people, 
I can guarantee you that things will change. Things will happen. Your heart will soften for people. Believe me, um, the worst of the worst could be softened in your eyes because of the way that you now can see them through God's eyes and God loves them. So I hope you have a blessed week and tune in next week. Thank you.